Genesis chapter 1. This should be the fastest anyone's ever turned to Scripture in their entire life. If you get there and you got it, say, oh, yeah. If you need a minute, say, hold up, brother. Okay, nobody messed with me this morning. I appreciate that. (laughs) Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, and then we're going to thumb to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Hear the word of the Lord. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Verse 2. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Chapter 3. Let's begin in verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly shall you go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise or crush his heel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God, and before considering it, we should pray. So let's pray. Come now, Lord, we ask that you would bless the reading, the hearing, and the doing of this, your word. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Amen. The Bible can be seen and understood as the story of God. And this story, the story of God, has a shape. When you think of shapes, you might immediately begin to think of circles and rectangles and rhombuses and triangles. And though there's a case to be made that there is a geometrical shape that corresponds with the scope of God's story, the shape is a bit different. Within this story, you have protagonist and antagonist. Within this story, you've got rising action, you've got conflict, you've got climax and resolution. This story has irony. It has high drama. It has narrative. It has comedy. It has tragedy and epic, heroic exploits. One of my favorite parts of the Bible that we rarely talk about is what would have happened to the Israelites after God told them to ground the idol they had fashioned while in Sinai and sprinkle it in their water. Three words, milk of magnesia. Within this story, you have genre, you have texture, it has a material to it. And this story matters because it reveals the most important story in the world. And case in point, spoiler alert, that story is not yours. It reveals that your story is not primary, nor are you the primary actor. And this is good for your soul. Because within this story, there's an invitation. 
There's an invitation to see the parts of your life where you are not flourishing or experiencing shalom and to see how Jesus intersects with that story. The story of God has a shape, and the shape of the story all throughout the text from Genesis to Revelation follows a four-step, what people would call meta-narrative. That is creation, fall, redemption, and recreation. Over the next eight or so weeks, as we're in Christ in the Old Testament, exploring how Jesus is in every road, how every road in the Bible leads to Jesus, how everything ultimately culminates in Christ and his kingdom, we will find that the biblical narrative flows along a creation, fall, redemption, and recreation narrative. As we see Jesus in the Old Testament, he's doing one of these four things at some point in all of the stories. So when we talk about Noah and his ark and the fact that God commanded a man to fashion a big old huge honking boat in the middle of the desert, that's wild. What does that speak to us about Jesus? As we explore the Exodus, what does that teach us about Jesus? As we look at those three Hebrew boys, Shadrach, Meshach, and a bad Negro, what does that teach us <laughs> about Jesus? As we look at the ministry of the minor prophets and the major prophets, what did they teach us about Jesus? As we look at all the miracles, all the narratives, all the stories, David and Goliath, etc., they're not just meant for you to interject yourself as the hero of the story, for you and I never have been. The point is to see how those stories point to a greater, better, more full, more saving reality. And what does the story of God, or rather, how does the story of God invite us into it? This morning, I want to take the next 20 or so minutes, and I want to put some pieces together, 30,000 feet of how the Bible fits together. As a child, I loved the Old Testament. My church preached a ton out of the Old Testament. I love Old Testament narrative. And I would imagine myself as David fighting Goliath. And I would imagine myself as, um, as, 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 as Moses holding that staff up. And I'm, I'm trying to try my best to just be the hero of the story. Imagine myself. I'm Gideon. Lord, I'm doubting. I'm doubting. Show me this fleece. Okay, cool. I got enough courage. I'm Gideon. I'm Joshua. Over and over and over again, I put myself as the hero of the story. And then when I got a little bit older, I began to read the New Testament almost exclusively, and I fell in love with the rigorous logic of Paul and the realism of Peter and the fear and trepidation of Timothy. And I saw myself in the story at all these different places in the ways that I felt. And I'm like, okay, this is about me. And then I went to seminary and I realized that I'd been reading the Bible completely wrong. I've been reading the Bible as if they were two books that did not speak to one another. Instead of recognizing that instead of two separate books, or even two books in one series, the Bible's like a play with the Old Testament fashioning and existing as Act 1, and the New Testament as Act 2. If you only read Act 1 without reading Act 2, you don't get a resolution. If you only read Act 2 without reading Act 1, you miss the rising action and why the resolution is so powerful. This idea of meta-narrative of how the Bible fits together begins with creation. So that's where we're going to begin, creation. 
And there's a hint in the Old Testament in verse 2 that if we miss it, we will miss the beauty and the power of creation. So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then verse 2, probably the most important verse in all of Genesis. That's my own personal opinion because it lets us into a clue. It says in chapter 1, verse 2, that on this earth it was without form and void and darkness was upon it. I want you to repeat after me. Can you say tohu vabohu? One more time. Say tohu vabohu. Those two words in the Hebrew, which is here in the Hebrew manuscript, signify chaos. So immediately off the bat in Genesis, we're thrust into a story that's already begun. We know that it's already begun because we read later in the Minor Prophets that Satan himself has tried to rebel against God and all of heaven, a third of heaven has rebelled and has ended up somewhere not in heaven. And where are they? They are in this dark, formless, void chaos that God is beginning to speak into. You could see and might even say that the scope of the creation narrative centers on three major themes. One is chaos. From the opening chapters of the Bible, God steps into chaos to do what? To create. And what does he create? He creates order. And how do you get, uh, what's the result of God creating order? The result of God creating order is blessing. So think about this. Satan rebels, Lucifer rebels. The entire earth is formless, it's dark, it's void, it's chaos, it's inhospitable. It is antithetical to the things of God here in this place. It is utter and total chaos. Do you know what chaos feels like? I I sometimes wonder why no one's ever taken a video of what it's like inside of a tornado and then I realize that you can't live there. When you think about chaos and how chaotic and dangerous and quite literally how death is present there, God steps into that. And on this Pentecost Sunday, this Sunday where Christians around the world are celebrating Pentecost, what happens in that upper room when God takes the chaos of multiple people in multiple languages and all of a sudden he reverses Babel and they understand each other's language as God speaking into chaos. Here's the point. In creation, God's word brings order to chaos through creation. All it took was God to open his mouth to bring order to chaos. When you think about that and how that begins to play out throughout the entire biblical narrative, You imagine all the ways that God's people find themselves in difficult predicaments, all the ways that they turn their backs on the Lord, all the ways that God's people pursue their own dreams, all the ways that God's people continue to live in chaos. And what does God do? What does he do with leaders and with the law and with certain foreign armies is that into chaos, God is creating order. I like the way that Alan Ross, my Hebrew professor at Beeson Divinity School says, he says this, he says, essentially the work of creation is a correction of chaos. Emptiness, formlessness, darkness, and the deep are replaced or altered with a creation that is pronounced good and is blessed by God. Too many of us begin the story of Christianity with the fall without realizing that God created order 
he blessed it and called it good. That our inherent nature is to be that which reflects God, that God called good. What it means to be created in the image of God is to be called good. It's to be good. It's to be blessed. And, and this is not in a prosperity gospel sense of the word. Because if we're honest, every last one of us believes in the prosperity gospel to some extent. We all receive or believe in some way that our activity for God might result in God rewarding or blessing us. But when you think about what it means to be human and exist in the world, the story of God begins with order out of chaos and blessing. So if in this, in creation, God creates the heavens and the earth, he speaks and creates all of the things. He fashions animals and flora and fauna, then creates man. He pronounces good and blessing over it. At the end of chapter 2, what we get, friends, is a picture of shalom. It is the holistic, flourishing peace of God. Nothing is broken. Nothing is missing. Nothing is out of order. This is how God designed the world for us to live in. And when I think about my life, I don't see shalom. I don't. When I look in my life, I see disordered loves and affections. When I see and think about my life, I think about the chaos that is my family. When I think about my life, I think about all the things that are broken like my knee that just can't get right. Our bodies are breaking down. The world literally is on fire. Half of Miami flooded just this past weekend. You've got earthquakes and volcanoes springing up out of nowhere, revealing new species of sharks. What is happening? <laughs> well, the reason that shalom doesn't exist outside of the presence of God is that God created order out of chaos for blessing for us to exist and experience shalom with him. But humanity, Adam and Eve, our forefather and foremother, made a decision, second point this morning, in the fall. So if blessing marks creation. When we get to the fall, it marks death. And out of all of this order now thrusts in more chaos. And how does the evil one tempt Adam and Eve to fall? He questions and undermines the very thing that God uses to create his word. Has God really said? And in the midst of this, Adam and Eve, they sin, they run away from God, they fashion fig leaves to try to hide themselves up because all of us have cat-like tendencies. We run from our sin and we want to cover it up. We want to make it look real good as if it doesn't exist. And we run and hide from God because we are ashamed. Well, who taught you to be that? Friends, it's in you. You can't help to be that. Humanity can't help but to be shame-filled and ridden because of what happens here in Genesis 3. And here, our forefather and foremother, shame-filled, guilt-ridden, run from God. And what does God do in his grace and his character but become the very first missionary in all of the Bible by going to them? 
In the fall, there are two evidences of the character and the nature and, dare I say, love of God that when Adam and Eve, in the midst of order and shalom, risked it all and blew it because they wanted to be like God, God pursued them. And here we get what's called the biblical theological arc, which is the activity of God in constantly pursuing his people. Now I want to camp out there for a minute because from the very beginning of the Bible, what you see is God pursuing, God going, God pursuing, God going, God initiating, God pursuing, God going. And every time you see humanity shrinking back, afraid, running from, doing everything they can in their power except for take a step toward God. Friends, the same impulse that Adam and Eve had in the fall, which is to run from God, is the very same reason why we need God to take a step toward us. And it's why we need God to initiate. It's why we need him to pursue us. Because, friends, if Christ did not arrest my soul and did not stop me in my tracks like Jonah from running, I would not be a Christian. If being a Christian were up to my own will, if it were up to my own efforts, I would not be here, but God pursues. And in the fall, there's a second promise found in Genesis 3.15. It's what theologians refer to as the proto-evangelion, the first evangelistic message. In the middle of God condemning these uh, two people, and as soon as sin casts all of creation into chaos again, he says, I will put enmity, I will put beef, I will put hatred. Uh, one of my favorite gospel hip hoppers, side note, uh, he says in the fall, God uh, cursed the ground. We call that ground beef. I like that. Anyway, uh, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And what he's having is a conversation between the serpent, which is Satan, and the woman. He's basically saying that I'm going to make you two hate each other. Not only am I going to make you hate each other, but you'll constantly be at war with each other. Not only will you constantly be at war with each other, but you'll constantly be at war to the point where you're going to kill each other. And then God says, he says, he shall bruise your head, but you shall bruise his heel. He's speaking to the serpent. He says, hey, serpent, what you're going to do is you're going to take those fangs and you're going to try to strike him to kill him. And you'll grab and latch on to his heel. But that seed of the woman, the seed of man, he will take his heel and he will crush your head. It is God interjecting hope in the midst of darkness. And it's God beginning to bring order to chaos. When you think about the creation, when you think about fall, in the fall, in the midst of this, God is bringing order to chaos so that, third point, we get to the point where we begin to see redemption. So how are we to understand all of the Old Testament? All of the Old Testament is God's attempts and God's work and God's activity to bring his people back to him, to win them over again. It is him going to his people, winning them over, setting out his standards and promises so that he might love them again. Okay, cool. Go to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. I like this. Uh, I'm going to try not to get bogged down here. We still got a little ground to cover over the next 11 minutes. But in Romans chapter 5, we find, I think, a really important and helpful illustration of how God brings order 
to chaos. Romans chapter 5, verse 18 and 19. All right, are you there? Oh, yeah, I like it. Okay, cool. In Romans chapter 5, verse 18, Paul writes, therefore. Now, before he's gotten there, he's talked about the fallenness of humanity. He's talking about the fact that all have sinned and fallen short. He's spoken about how Abraham and uh, how Adam uh, and, and Adam were all cursed, how Abraham begins to reverse that. In chapter 5, he talks about having peace with God, shalom with God. And then in verse 18, he says, Therefore, as one trespass, as one sin led to condemnation or death for all men, so one act of righteousness, one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now, here's what's beautiful. It took one act to thrust the entire universe into chaos. And it took one act to reverse that curse. The Bible is moving from the fall toward an arc of redemption that ultimately sees Jesus creating order from sin's chaos through his redemption. It's really beautiful. Now, think about all the ways that sin makes your life chaotic. I think about all the ways that a lie can be destructive. And perhaps it is the most destructive thing on the face of the earth, that one lie, whether a lie that's spoken or a lie that we believe, tends to alter the very reality around us. So sometimes if I get into a disagreement or I get sideways with people, I will sometimes go to them and I will say, hey, listen, I'm writing this narrative in my mind that either is going to make me a false prophet or a liar. And I need to actually say and speak this narrative out loud so that you can tell me if I'm believing a lie or not. It's been a really helpful practice because 99% of the time I've written just an incredibly false narrative about someone in my brain and I've become a false prophet and I have become a liar. In many ways, the lie, but also in what ways does the brokenness of humanity, the brokenness of trauma, the brokenness of sexual sin, the brokenness of fatherlessness, the brokenness of anxiety and depression, the brokenness of broken relationships, the brokenness of mental anxieties and disorders, the brokenness of trying to be a church that's intercultural and intergenerational with a 36-year-old black pastor. When you think about all the brokenness in the world, it's chaos. The entire world is chaos. If you don't believe me, watch cable news for five minutes. Actually, don't do that. Just don't watch cable news. Go outside for five minutes and get bit by a mosquito and tell me if you won't be longing for the eschaton to get here. The entire world is thrust into sin because of the fall and Jesus by one act. Think about that. One act changes and begins to reverse this curse. What a disastrous decision by Adam and Eve and what a glorious sacrifice by Christ Jesus himself. I love when you begin to think about what this is. Why does Jesus begin to bring order from sin's chaos? It is because Jesus brings order to chaos so that you might know shalom. Nothing broken. Nothing missing. Nothing out of place. Jesus brings order to the chaos around us of sin
by defeating sin from his one act of obedience, now the many are made righteous so that we ourselves, friends, become the hands and feet of God who bring shalom where we go. Here's the thing I think the church has missed. I think the church in the West, particularly the church in the South, particularly the church in the Southeast, has over-spiritualized the things of the Bible so as to take personal responsibility off of the table so that what we might believe intellectually would correlate with how we live. So as long as we believe rightly, then that means that we are right. And friends, that is not Bible, nor is it the way of the kingdom. Yes, there is a deep spiritual component to the things of God, and God has ordained his church to be his hands and feet. So how else are people going to experience Jesus if not through his people? And if they don't experience the shalom of God through us, then friends, how in the world are people going to experience the shalom of God? There is the utter necessity to see the plans, the purposes, and the commands of Christ as things to be embodied, to be incarnated, and then disseminated to those who are around us. That is how we experience the kingdom of God. It should be true that whenever someone steps in a church, they experience what the kingdom is like. It should be equally as true that when someone steps into your home, they should experience what the kingdom is like. It is also true that when someone is in a secret, safe conversation with you, they should experience what the kingdom is like. Are y'all all right? Because at the end of the day, creation Fall redemption. We are in the work and in the business of bringing redemption to the nations where what we believe and what we confess and how we live are all congruent. When you think about Jesus creating life, he does so as the word of God, by his word, bringing blessing in the middle of chaos. He brings blessing by bringing the order of the kingdom so that all of those under his care might experience blessing. So where sin reigned in chaos, now Christ reigns in his order, and we can choose to live in the chaos of sin and its formless, destructive tohu vabohu, or we can choose order and actually follow the way of Jesus. It's a very real choice because at the end of the day, what we experience now is only a prelude and a precursor to what's coming. Fourth and finally, what we see and how the narrative of the Bible tracks is toward recreation. You might say new creation. Some theologians refer to it as recapitulation. It is the idea that God will take what's broken and make it better than brand new. All who are in Christ are new what? Creatures. What a fascinating phrase for Paul to use unless Paul understands that God takes chaos, creates new life out of chaos, and out of that new life brings blessing. So in recreation, one of the ways that we can understand what bit of what this looks like is by turning to the very last chapter in our Bible in Revelation chapter 22 in verses 1 through 5. When John the Revelator, as he's caught up, is given this vision from God, where he says, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, brightest crystal flowing from the throne of God and 
of the lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life. What's he describing? He's describing a garden. So we go from the garden in Eden. Now, now notice, side note, um, it is not the garden of Eden. It's the garden in Eden. God creates the universe, then he creates the earth. Within the earth, he creates a more special place called Eden, and within, the e- within Eden, he puts a garden. It's why the ancient Near Eastern temples, the temple, the tabernacle, and then later the temple would reflect the concentric circles of creation. You had the outer courts, and then you got a little bit closer, you had the inner courts. You got a little bit closer, you had the, uh, the, the, the throne of God, if you will, the, the sanctuary. And within the sanctuary, you had the Holy of Holies, the one place where only one person should go. So you got God in his garden, creating an ultimate special place where his people dwell with him. And then here in Revelation 22, you've got a garden in all of this recreated universe where God is dwelling with his people. Are y'all picking up when I'm stepping in? So, so then in chapter, verse 2, through the middle of the street and also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. So the very tree that created all of this mess is going to be the tree that gets used to heal it all. I wish I had time to preach that. That's good. Sometimes your brokenness and what God heals you from will be the instrument God uses as an agent of healing in others. We got we to gotta talk about what happened to us because it's happening to somebody else right now and we need them to have the hope that we have in Jesus. More on that uh, maybe in two weeks. I, I'm going to have to come back to that. Verse 3, no longer will there be anything accursed. No longer will there be anything accursed. Not a tree, not a person, not an animal. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face. Y'all, we gonna see him. They will see his face. His name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need no light or lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. Here's the point. God will create shalom and end chaos in recreation. All of the hurt, all of the pain, all the brokenness, all of the sin that abounds around us, God will bring it to an end. It all has an expiration date. And all throughout the Bible, God is moving us from one garden to the next so that shalom is what we live in, so that all is right and in order. And until he comes, the reality is, is that in Christ Jesus, from creation to recreation, he is not only in it, He's not only working through it, but within this story, it's all about him and how we can experience all of that right now. So here's the question as I close my time. 
We've already mentioned that this is not your story. This is not your story. But one of the invitations of this series will be, where is Jesus in your story? How does he speak into the chaos? Are you letting him live in chaos? Or have we grown so comfortable with chaos that we've crowded him out? And one of the ways that we can pray is that Jesus would speak by his word and through the hands and feet of his people into the chaos of our lives so that we might experience shalom. Let's pray. Father, as we consider what you've given us, would you speak to our hearts and reveal to us the ways in which we can be faithful to removing ourselves as the actor of our stories, the main actor, the main character in our stories, and insert you there. And show us now, Father, how we might fit into that story. And Jesus, show us how you enter into the chaos of it. So come, Lord Jesus. We pray these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.